0: Hey, team of Eternal Optimists, it's Matt Drinkon here. And before we launch into today's epic conversation, I've got a big announcement. Drum roll, please. <gasps> My brand new book is coming out on March 8th. And perhaps even better news, you can get it for only 99 cents on Amazon that day. We don't run ads on the show. And if you ever want to get back and support the Eternal Optimist community, Go to Amazon on March 8th and get the Kindle version for only 99 cents. Just search for the book title, The Eternal Optimist, It's Never Too Late, and you can download it directly to your device. Now, let's get to the show. Welcome again, my friends, The Eternal Optimist podcast, where we help by showing you hope and showing you that you can do it too amazing stories and amazing people who are the definition of success today well guess what each and every one of these people had to go through something deep and painful and challenging and they we wonder if they were going to make it through where many probably do not make it through some of the challenges that we hear on the show many do and they do because there's something in them that drives them to keep going it pushes them through that next place. And the person you're gonna hear from today, uh, out of her own mouth, she is gonna tell you stories that will floor you uh, as to what she grew up in, the environment that she grew up in. Extreme poverty, she grew up in a place where she was always under fearful eye of being injured or hurt uh, in some way from her family. So buckle up for this, it's an emotional discussion, there's some challenges in here that may bring up some stuff inside of each and every one of us. This is someone, my friend Rebecca Creel, who has overcome. And now the way that she is empowered to serve the community, what she does, she is a practicing family law attorney in Columbia, South Carolina, in a place where she goes to work every day and sees people, as she would say, on one of the worst days of their lives when they come to see an attorney about family things. And the way that she does this each and every day to serve people is truly inspirational. Rebecca is an amazing woman. She's an amazing mother and wife. She's someone who's been through a lot and she will share without any holding back on today's conversation. I welcome you today to hear a story from an amazing woman, Rebecca Creel. Hello, and welcome to the Eternal Optimist Podcast, the show for optimists by optimists. This is the show for people who see the good in the world and want to make a positive difference in the lives of their families and communities. Each week, you'll hear inspiring stories that will get you thinking bigger and playing more offense in life. With your host and high-performance coach, Matt Drinkon. I would like to welcome to the show, Rebecca Creel. Rebecca, good day. How are you today?
1: I'm DeMette. Thank you so much for having me.
0: It's a pleasure and an honor. And for those who don't know you, I would love to ask you what might be three things that they should know about you just to get things kicked off.
1: Well, I am a family court lawyer practicing throughout South Carolina, which I've been doing for almost 15 years now. I am married to the most brilliant IT person in the whole wide world and best daddy. Ever made Ellis Creel, which is how we know you. And let's see, what about something a little off the beaten path? We are frustrated farmers living in town. So we have a big garden out back and have chickens and grow our own veggies. And so we're the pandemic, I joke, we kind of were planning our whole lives for it because we love to be home and garden and do all those things. So we were we were ready.
0: Awesome. Well, I want to seat our listeners to prepare for our discussion today because you have an amazing story and some of the things that you've overcome in your life just by talking once have been very astounding and amazing to hear. So I'm glad we have you on to talk about some of the challenges and then about how you're serving in the world. Before we get to that, though, I've got to pause for a second because uh, you said you're married to Mr. Ellis Creel, best daddy. I would like to, uh, to take a moment and hit a couple of jabs, loving jabs at Ellis. Ellis is someone that I met back in 2003 when I lived in Columbia, South. Carolina and he was at that time became a dear friend he was my professional tailor someone who was was into the handcrafted fine men's clothing and you know I would love for you if you can comment a little bit about his wardrobe and about fine men's clothing love to hear any any thoughts that come out there
1: so when I met Ellis when I moved here to Columbia he was still in the fine men's clothing industry and he was the most elegantly dressed person I had ever seen particularly someone in my age group always just dressed to the nines everything custom suited and even now all these years later he doesn't work in the custom suiting industry but he still measures friends one of my best friends he fitted for his wedding tux so he still kind of keeps that alive but the big joke was when we got together we moved in and you know I'm in graduate school and his wardrobe cost more than my house, I think, at the time. And admittedly, he was getting all these things that cost. But I made him get renter's insurance because I said, if this place burns down, I can run to Ross. <laughs> I'll be fine. You're going to be in trouble. <laughs> and now we have a little boy who just turned six. And the big joke is, is that ellis dresses him very avant-garde and that's what ellis likes to say it's avant-garde i like to say it looks like a color he's dressed like a colorblind of clown so but i was like how do these skills that you have to dress so elegantly not translate to a tiny version of you i just don't understand but he's still still into clothes still beautifully dressed just he doesn't do that anymore which is funny because I'm like, is like not a fashion person. You know, I'm pretty, <laughs> pretty laid back about that.
0: Fantastic, yeah. I, when I first met him, he was the person. That I didn't know how to dress myself either. The colors were you know, crazy in every direction, and the, the patterns and designs were basically like I was blind. And he really helped me with that. And he was the first person I met in the whole world basically that you know helped me into uh, understanding and, and having a basically a, having a sense of style. So I appreciated him for that, and we became friends. So. That's how we met and when I heard about your story, just there's so many things that we could talk about and just thank you for being here to share them. Let's go back in time and and let's start back at the beginning. I'd love to tease out here, just where, where were some of the initial opportunities in your life, the challenges in your life that we can start with that helped to frame who you've become today?
1: Sure. Well, so I grew up in a very, very small town called Hemingway, population about 800, definitely probably three cows to every person. It's in kind of the coastal plain of South Carolina. And when my p- parents had us, which I'm a twin, I say us, if you hear me referring to myself in the plural, I am an identical twin. So my mom has surprised twins because they didn't do ultrasounds back then. I didn't have a middle name until I got married because they had picked a name for a girl and my sister got one and I got the other. So at the time that we were born I have an older sister, my parents lived a very idyllic life. They built their dream house. My dad was self-educated and working in the steel industry started at the most terrible basic job that they offered at the steel mill and you know by the time I was a little and coming along, he was in upper management and just doing very well for himself. My mom was a school teacher and it was the 80s, and he developed a really significant drug problem. He went from you know, having his dream life, his dream wife, his beautiful home, to experimenting with cocaine and alcohol to the point that he lost his job, lost his family. And ultimately, I guess I was probably 15 or 16 by this time, but he ended up Live, he was living homeless, living in a park in or in outside of Myrtle Beach, and so so it's very interesting to me, kind of as an adult looking back on that experience. And I was I feel so incredibly fortunate because I was the kid in a lot of the cases that I work on now, where you have a parent with a really significant problem, and people are surprised to hear my story when I tell them about it because my husband calls it sunshine and buttercups. He's like, there's just Nothing goes on in your life that you don't have a smile about. How is that even possible? And I, you know, I mean, really, it's whenever you have a, you know, a parent who nails the windows of the house shut and tries to burn it down with you in it or chases you in a car with a gun. It's after you are able to survive such an experience, like a wartime experience almost, everything takes on such a different flavor.
0: Wow. Okay. Pause, pause. You, I don't want to just gloss through some of those major things you shared. And because if, if the listeners know who you are now, you're successful. You, you lead a firm, you have a family and you just shared several stories or several little pieces of a map here that would derail and have derailed so many people and somehow you made it through. And I'd love to go back to you were a child growing up. You had this idyllic life where your father had become successful, upper management, had the dream home, and then things started to shift. And if you could take us back to that, that phase in life, and when did you start to notice a shift in behavior or in just your lifestyle back in that preteen year?
1: Well, and I would say the problems that my dad developed started when I was very young, you know three or four years old. And I'm very lucky. I have a big sister. She's eight years older than us. And so my sister, I think really got to experience more. And I like to think of it as my dad's authentic self prior to him developing in a problem, the goodness, the kindness, the, the family that he was. And so then by the time we come along, my twin sister and I, those problems had already begun to develop pretty significantly. And so frankly, I didn't know any better. I didn't know people didn't live the way that we lived because that was just the way that our life was. And, you know, I don't have this pull yourself up by your bootstraps mentality. I understand that I am definitely the exception, not the rule to people who have similar experiences. And there are many things in the process, particularly, I would say, in my formative years, you know, my when I was eight and nine and up on along and that made the difference for me and and one of them was having just this you know tough as nails tiger mom who just never allowed our circumstances which were epic. I mean, I my big joke is that our town was so small we didn't have 911 service, but I knew the phone number to the police station before I knew my own phone number as a little girl. I still know it 558-2424 and So with her, she, despite how difficult things were, she never allowed our circumstances to be an excuse for us not fulfilling our potential. And what she would tell us is that baby, if, if the best you can do is a a C, then I will be so happy that you got a C. But if you're capable of an A, I expect you to do the work. I expect you to do it. And it wasn't in a, a hot, like it was in such a constructive way, in such a supportive way. And I think, I don't know that she thought about it actively, but it also gave us an outlet somewhere to focus that anxious energy, that fear, that stress into things that we did have capable skills in. So I had that. And then the other thing that I had and have to this day and kind of is my passion is, is I've had incredible mentors in addition to my mom. In fact, I became a lawyer because of a lawyer. And my family kind of, because I, you know, there are a lot in South Carolina, particularly, and I'm sure it's true everywhere, but there are a lot of fine old families where my granddad was a lawyer and him, the dad before, and my dad, now I'm a lawyer. Well, you know, my, some of my family's on the other side of the law. So the joke is we needed a lawyer in the family, (laughs) but You know, I, there was a person during this time in our life when things were so chaotic and I tease my mom because she's elegantly beautiful, brilliant. She was in graduate school while she was going through all this, maintaining like a 4.0, working three jobs. I don't know how she put it all together with three kids. I've just got the one and sometimes I feel like I'm holding on with two hands. But she had a very dear friend that she met who was a lawyer and he wasn't her lawyer. He just took an interest in our family and saw the circumstances we were in and understood that my mom is working at a gas station, but she's almost got a doctorate. And she appreciated art and music and experiences, but just didn't have an ability to offer that to her children. And so Mr. Connor would say, hey, Sherry, and I'm sure he got them for us, but he would just say, hey, I got some extra tickets to this event. Take the girls. Or I've you know, pulled my camper down to the beach. Go take the girls for a few days and let them play. And because of what he did, it gave him the ability, the financial tools and those kinds of things to be able to reach back and help the people in his community to see different. And I, w- I feel so lucky. I don't think everybody got to have that. So that mentorship that he gave to me, even as a little girl, It changed the game. So that's what I think was different.
0: So many amazing things you just shared. And I want to paint a picture of your mother of who you've just described. And so you started with challenges, and in sharing the challenges, you've also shared some solutions. And one of the solutions or one of the ways that that you found that you became sunshine and buttercups, you became an optimist. You became someone that has a great attitude around (laughs) things. And and as, as I'm witnessing right now, this great attitude and this, this smile and feeling the energy, you had a couple of things that were going for you. One of the things on your side is you had a mom who empowered you to have an outlet to focus your energy into something else. She was tough as nails. She herself is a great story of resilience and grit and love for those out there who may be in a, a, a spousal relationship that may be challenging, then one strong parent made an incredible difference for you, and we're hearing that. And on the other side of it, if there's a parent that has this challenge with something, you know, that also, as challenging as it may seem in the moment, has been something that has shaped you into this amazing human that I am now speaking with at this moment. All right. So there there was something really, really positive that came from the challenge and some of the pain. Yes, for sure.
1: Oh, Sure. And even after all of things that we experienced with my dad, all of the fear, all of the chaos, you know, my mom, and I credit her this and I, you know, advise clients, they should have the same attitude. She never said an unkind word. She never said an unkind word about our dad. What she would say is you all got the best of him and the best of me. So my dad was a very outgoing person. He just, he was one of those people that would tell a story and oftentimes it was a joke and he would tell wine this incredible story and just have everyone on the edge of their seats. And then, of course, there's some ridiculous punchline at the end and everyone's groaning, you know, his story. But, but, but that is the personality that he had. And that kind of larger than lifeness about him, I think also kind of it was the other side of the coin. But she never was unkind. And I was very fortunate. I was able to kind of Make peace with him before he's passing, and I'm thankful for the things that the things about him that he gave me. Because my mom, as tough as she is, she's kind of an introvert, and she's just a huge supporter of people. But she would rather be in the background doing the supporting. And she's like, "I'm really glad that you got your dad's stage presence, his theater, you know, that kind of theater of him." And I look at him with much kinder eyes now as a parent they say being a mother changed or being a parent chases everything and it seems really hokey but it really is the truth because your lens completely I changed
0: love the way them. right now you're talking about him and it's 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 not remorse it's not disgust it's not judgmental you're sharing your story and you're doing it with the kindness and an empathy and I can feel that and I'm glad you're sharing this how parenthood has helped you there and I feel a genuine kindness about you Rebecca because of these things. It didn't happen to you. They've helped to shape you into this person who's having this this great impact. So yeah, I wanted to put that out there. I'm feeling it right now.
1: Well, thank you. Well, I just, understanding what it means to be a parent only reminded me how hard that, you know, how, what a big monkey it must have been on his back, you know, that he was dealing with during that time. And, you know, I don't, Excuse the things that he because I do think people have to make the choices in their life that lead them to where they are. But I just have a much bigger heart for him. And I was also very lucky. My mom remarried in my adolescent years, and it's the big joke in our family is my dad and my stepdad were both Larry, so (laughs) everybody in the family was Larry. But so I had a very different experience as I got older with a step parent and you know having a blended family. And he was kind of the opposite end of you know he was you know my dad was kind of a, a more I mean in his bad sense I would say like dad was aggressive aggressive my stepdad was a little more passive in that way so I joke that I kind of can handle all ends the <laughs> all into that but he was also just an incredibly hard worker I mean he worked eight days wow. a week and which not necessarily always a great thing but just he was so serious about what he did and put so much passion into it that Despite the workaholism, I've tried to take that away from him too.
0: (laughs) Fantastic. Wow.
1: And then when I, when I first got to be a lawyer, I worked in the real estate industry and he worked in banking. And so finally in adulthood, I had this one thing that he is so jazzed about that I could bond with him over. I never knew that like HUDs were going to be the thing. And so we were able to bond in my early, you know, that and then we had something to really chat about, and that he was passionate
0: about. So well, I love the chronicle of, of the story and how it's evolved. You know, and it's it's it started in a place of challenge or a place of opportunity. How you frame it? It moved to a, a blended family, a blended opportunity, something different there. And now, and you know, we move forward to being an attorney. And and you had mentors along the way. You had a tough as nails mom. You became sunshine and buttercup. So you've you've shared a lot so far. I'd love to go back and in the very beginning you you mentioned a couple of tiny details that were very intriguing and i don't know how easy it is to talk about these things but you mentioned something along the lines of you know nailing the window shut and burning the house oh, oh okay. if could you please take us back to to that cuz sure. that sounds like something that we probably don't have a frame for
1: well Matt, i i'm happy to say, i'm happy to talk about it and i, I actually humanizing that I think is so important. You know, you never know what goes on behind closed doors, these white picket fences. And I even think my mom, they built this big dream house together that my mom did design. And so in our little small community, my mom has seen this big, beautiful home and then inside what was happening was so scary. So after my dad really kind of started abusing cocaine regularly and it had such a negative impact on his personality, made him very aggressive you know, paranoid, just, and he was running in very dangerous circles. It was just, it really kind of changed the character of who he was. And, and he became very vengeful, very angry towards my mom. And there was so my mom, again, she's working all these jobs, just trying to keep, you know, keep everything going. And one day she noticed that the outlets beside her bed and in a couple other places in the house were no longer working. And frankly, she didn't have time to, an electrician we called my uncle who can do anything and he comes by and my dad had rewired all of these outlets to catch fire and my mom also would not run the air conditioning very much and this is something in the like the low country part of South Carolina, where it's a hundred percent humidity and you know ninety nine degrees all summer, but we just didn't run the air conditioning. We would open the windows and you know kind of let the screens do their job as they did like that you know hundred years ago in the South. And all of a sudden, we couldn't get the windows open. And my mom makes me like an Amazon. I mean, she is a teeny weeny little woman, and I think she had it in her mind that you know this. The wood had swollen from the humidity, which is not uncommon, you know, where a window will get stuck because of the weather. So my uncle tries to put these windows up to, while he was working upstairs where all these outlets are. And he says, Sherry, they're all nailed closed. I mean, somebody, and you know, we know that that it had to have been him, has set this house up to be a fire trap. And all the outlets were in her room. And he would do other kind of very paranoid things. I know my mom had this antique doll that she had when she was a little girl, so she's in her 70s now, but and it was a gift to her from a very dear family member. And one day, all the heads of there were, I think, two or three of the, all the heads just disappeared and they were left these headless dolls just as an act of just terror to her. And yet, she never, I mean. She, of course, I mean, we kind of didn't know any better again. Like I said, this was just the way that our life was. But she, even in the face of all that, made us feel and did everything she could to let us know that it was that, you know, we're going to be okay as a team. And... This was, like I said, in the 80s and 90s, things were very different. Access, you know, to help was a lot different Then, I mean, even now, I, you know, I think if my mom calls, we do have 911 back home now, but, you know, I mean, it's, getting a policeman out there, that's a 30-minute project. That's not a quick release. So we were lucky to have family who were able to kind of come in and stand in the gap, you know, during all those crazy times, but, and that was not the person he was before he you know, had this terrible cocaine addiction.
0: Well, so you you took us through the story of nailing the window shut and basically living in a fire trap and then the, the incident with the dolls and it feels like there's a real environment of some fear uh, and some anxiety producing uh, stuff going on. The one last thing you mentioned before was something around driving and maybe being chased, something of that nature.
1: Yeah, so we, and my, so I had my dad's sister who was kind of the matriarch of my dad's family. He was one of seven, so there were a ton of them. And we all kind of lived nearby. And his sister and her husband, we knew that if we could get to them, you know, if dad was being crazy, if he was doing whatever he was doing, if we could get in the car and get to Aunt Faye, we would be okay. Because my dad would listen to his sister and my uncle was kind of a super alpha male. I mean, he just he was a man of few words, but you just did not kind of cross him. You know, we knew that he would look out for us and dad knew better than to mess with him. And we had this incident where my dad just really, I think, you know, as an adult looking back had a psychotic event. I mean, just hyper religiosity, just ter- we terrorizing the whole family. So we finally, my mom jumps into a car and kind of, we barrel out of there and we need to get to my aunt and a car is chasing us with no lights on and brandishing weapons out of the window. And, you know, here we are. And it's so crazy, actually, this realization a few weeks ago that the lessons that my mom was instilling in me during this time in my life, let's say I was, I think I was six or so when some of these things were happening, like the real kind of super intensity things were going on. And my mom is going through drills with me about what happens if your dad kidnaps you, because that was always a threat. You know, looking around, figuring out where you are, looking to see where a phone is. How do you escape out if you get locked into a trunk? What do you do? So she's going through all these trainings with us. And and I had this thought the other day, and I'm looking at my son, who is also six, who does not have these skill Like you know, it would not cross my mind. And yet, my mom, when we were that age, is drilling us on what. Yeah, we I do mean, how
0: do you times. process that as a six-year-old? Like how 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 did you take that in?
1: Well, yeah.
0: As a six-year-old, when your mom's saying that, Dad, if Dad kidnaps you, then pay attention to your surroundings. Like, what do you? How do you take that?
1: Uh, you know, I think children are thankfully, incredibly resilient. And, you know, even I I was talking to someone the other day, I said, children will take the information that you give them at the level that you give it to them. So if you make this a crisis, they're going to interpret it as a crisis. Now, again, we were in crisis. But if my mom was like, this is just something you need to know, in the same way that you need to know what your address is, what your phone number is, this is a skill set that you need to have. And it was never in a panic. It was always just in a cool, collected way. And it didn't occur to me that other people didn't know these things either. (laughs) So, but it was, but now as an adult, I look back and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, it's like my mom was raising me in a war zone to train me to, to be able to deal with these things. And, and I have another, a really, another lawyer friend of mine who we kind of commiserate over how do we raise our children to have that grit, to have that resilience without them having to suffer, you know, trauma and difficulty. And it's like, you know, such a, I think, you know, cause I read this thing one time and it said, you know, tragedy is the blessing that no person wants. And I think it's because in crisis, in tragedy, that's where you build those, that toughness, that grit, that intensity that you need to, to really succeed, you know, not to just kind of live in, in the middle life. And I want that for him. I want him to have that passion and that enthusiasm and that resilience, but without at the same time, shielding him at all times, you know, from anything that, you know, might.
0: Yes. And that's the paradox too. Yeah, and because you, I, I would not wish this experience on any six-year-old, and at the same time, it is it has helped you to evolve into this amazing human who is shepherding your own child, and you are serving so many families right now, and what you do for a living, which I want to start to build a bridge to move into that here in a moment, so if we can finish up this this thought of how we might build resilience and grit in our children while also not wanting them to have to go through some of the hard stuff. That is a paradox. How how might we do that?
1: <laughs> wow, the million dollar question. You know, what I've really tried to do is look at not what happened, but what my mom and my dad and my my stepdad, who we adopted later this not what happened to us, but what they did to help us get through it. And so you know, going through a tough time, and I think any toughness, whether it's you know if you think of it in degrees, if it's a hundred degrees or, or 10 degrees, it's still your tough time. And you know my difficulty does not lessen or minimize what other people are going through, even if it's different. So when Francis has a challenge, you know I'm hoping it's a 10, not a hundred. I look at those skills. I look at ensuring that he doesn't use that challenge as an excuse not to do the best that he's able to do that. He does not look at it as a roadblock, but a stepping stone to a next space for him. And in, and then, you know, I, I, because that's that the skill that she provided, I think transcends the trauma and the difficulty.
0: I'm feeling that the skill that you've, teased out with your mom here is it's calm. It's matter of fact, it's sharing that this is something to be prepared for in a way that is that cool, calm. What it's not is it's not panic. It's not everything is an emergency. And internally, there always is some high-level awareness that we may be on alert. She's not instilling panic in you, however. She's instilling in you cool, calm, and that is what may have helped lead to tough as nails and resilient is her cool, calm, I can get it done, I, we can we can make this happen mentality.
1: Well, and it's, it's so funny to me because my mom jokes, she said, I don't know how you re- figured out a way to monetize the fact that you're really good in a crisis. But I, I joke that it's, you know, when you have had genuine crisis, when you have experienced genuine poverty then you understand and can help guide people that are having a personal crisis that is not really you know, an off, it's not a life altering. It's not a life and death crisis and kind of help them manage that anxiety, because just in the same way that, you know, a child is going to receive it the way that you deliver it. I think it works for grown-ups in crisis, too.
0: Amazing perspective, Rebecca. Thank you for that. As much as you are able to or willing to share, I'd love to go into how that cool, calm, tough as nails woman named Rebecca Creel that I'm looking at right now. I'm going to just make the assumption here because I'm seeing it live that that mentality that your mother had, you have that mentality. And how might you use that now in, say, for example, something you see now in serving families and family law? Like, what is an example of you using that now when it's needed?
1: Well, you know, family court is a very unique animal. And a lot of my colleagues, when they hear that I do domestic, they kind of groan because it is so emotionally charged. And a lot of lawyers won't do it. There's a lot of crying. There's a lot of cussing. There's a lot. I mean, it's just because people who see me and I I mentor a lot of Lawyers, I I think that's so important in this job. And there's this one girl that I worked with, and I told her I said if you ever forget that when someone comes to talk to you for the first time, it's the worst day of their life. You need to go do something else. You know, the research suggests that the three most difficult things that a person experiences in a lifetime is the loss of a child, the loss of a parent, and the end of a marriage. And so understanding that day one, clients are coming to talk with me in crisis, helping manage their expectations about what we can do, empower them on the ability for the family core process to help them, I think helps calm that anxiety. And you can't help, I can't help but get attached to my clients. I'm a people person. I love people. I love helping you know, helping is my favorite. You know, I've gotten so close with clients. I've officiated their weddings when they got remarried. You know, I get Christmas cards. And so I am very attached to my clients. But my role in the process is to be calm and detached emotionally. And I actually, with every client that I work with on day one, whether they hire me or not, I give them, it's, it has evolved over years and years. And it's not my initial baby, my first family lawyer boss who's now a judge. She started it when she started her practice and I've kept it up over all these years. It's called client expectations because nobody who has a lawyer is a happy person. Happy people don't need lawyers, but if they know what to expect, they're less miserable. And so I talk about everything from what they can expect from our staff, from our office, what they can expect from the process of family court, all the way to what they can expect from their spouse. You know, I tell people, don't expect your spouse to be anyone they're not. Expect their bad habits to get worse during this process. To try and lay a foundation for what the road is really going to look like for them. And that, I think, has translated very much from my experience growing up where, We had a groundwork. If this horrible thing happens, then here are the skill sets that you need to deal with them. If you have a crisis, these are the contacts that you will need to make in order to, you know, kind of cross that bridge. And so I'm able to do that in some ways with clients as well. And like I said, I try to do it on day one and I've had clients kind of have a hissy fit. And I said, did you, do you keep that paper that I sent you? Because now, of course, we do everything as much as we can virtually. They have it in email, go back, look at page two. Make sure you remember what I told you about one, two, and three to try and help calm those anxieties. You know, because it sounds kind of crunchy, but I do try to look at my the people that I work with holistically. I don't just think about it. And I'm a huge nerd, unapologetic. I find the academic part of domestic law very interesting, but I'm pragmatic, too. You know, and so to look at it in that holistic way, and for clients who need a therapist, let me get a referral for you, who need a financial advisor to help figure out a new normal in that way, because they're going to need those resources.
0: It feels like you're also, you just named a couple of the professions. It sounds like you're a good connector. It sounds like you're great at setting expectations. So it's clear what's going to happen in the process. And I, I feel you have a huge heart. I just feel a lot of love and a lot of good energy coming out. And you're able to put that on pause and realize that this is probably the worst day of their life. So you don't get so wrapped up emotionally in it, or you can be that calm, cool person who coolly shares with them what to expect. So a lot of great things you just shared right there. If there's any business person listening, a lot of great nuggets. If there's any person that's listening who wants a lesson in the masterclass in empathy and emotional intelligence, we just got an experiential front row seat. And I would look to, you mentioned pragmat pragmatism and being a big nerd. I'd like to highlight the nerdism for a second to lighten things up. (laughs) Uh, Behind you in your video is a little, looks like a little pop-up, a little doll that looks like, is that the She-Hulk back there?
1: (laughs) It is. It is the She-Hulk. I have developed over, so I, I do love comic books. I'm a Marvel fan. I love the movies. They helped introduce my son to love Led Zeppelin, so I can't help but enjoy that, but I have a very good friend who is even comic book nerdier than me, who sent me a big She-Hulk when I opened my own law firm. She-Hulk in the comic pantheon is a superhero, but also a lawyer. And my friend says, <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> My friend says, I'm not saying you're She-Hulk, but I've never seen you two together, so <laughs> here's a doll. And I've collected a few of them over the years from clients. One of my She-Hulks is in... Uh, a lawyer at least she's in lawyer mode she's got a little suit on and a briefcase and the other one is in superhero mode so
0: (laughs) fantastic thank you for taking us down the the rabbit hole there into the she-hulk you also mentioned something before we started recording you you were talking about you and your husband you 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 read books and you have a little game you play where you try to summarize with each other something about the book can you share what that game is
1: Absolutely. My job reminds me every day. I am the luckiest woman in the whole wide world to be married to my husband. He is absolutely the best. And I think the pandemic years have really either You know, as somebody who works in this industry, have really pulled families apart or really cemented them together. And I feel so lucky that we're in the the latter half of that group. But my husband works in IT and he spends a lot of time waiting, you know, as programs are loading, as systems are rebooting and he has a Kindle. And some people have the newest phone, the newest car. He will have the the top-of-the-line Kindle at all times because he has it in his hand all the time. And while he's waiting, he's reading. And he's always reading something nonfiction, which makes him great at dinner parties. He can talk about the composition of orange juice or the oyster industry in New York before the Bay got poisoned. But he also reads a lot of sci-fi and other, you know, fantasy fiction and he reads so quickly that I can't keep up with what he's reading. And so we play a game called three words and I, he'll be reading his He's got his Kindle. And I said, tell me what you're reading in three words. And sometimes it's, you know, orange juice industry. And sometimes it's zombie space pirates. <laughs> 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 so, you know, he, it really requires a lot of creativity from him to, to get some of his really kind of crazy things that he reads down to three words.
0: (laughs) Fantastic story. I'd love to take it into a three-word game with you. And if you were to say three words that were to describe why family law is something that's so meaningful to you, what might be your three words for that?
1: I could do it in three phrases. I don't know if I could do it down to three words.
0: (laughs) Entrepreneurs always break the rules. So please feel free to to edit the game into three phrases. Yes. So,
1: So one would be personal experience because I've been that kid. Two is academically stimulating. You know, family court is probably the only place that touches so many areas of the law. We're not just dealing with the family law. We deal with military law, ERISA, international jurisdictional issues. So there's a lot of nerdy lawyer, statutory information. And just that part of it is very interesting to me. And the third is storytelling. So when I was coming up, I did... I was a band nerd and a theater nerd and loved to be in that environment and love storytelling. And that's what I get to do for a living. You know, Family Court in South Carolina, at least a lot of it is done in writing and you get to do really authentic, creative writing. And, and my job, and I tell clients, my job is to tell your story. And so when I go through the intake process and it kind of runs people off, some clients get a little intimidated by my consultation process, but I have clients do a very comprehensive novel where they are going through detailed facts, detailed financial information so that I can understand before we ever give you really much legal advice, really what your story is. And then I get to take that and in all different kinds of ways, get to tell people's story. And I love that. It's so creative. It's so satisfying. And, and for the clients, too, to get an opportunity to be heard, because that is lacking for a lot of them to have ever really felt authentically heard.
0: Thank you for uh, gifting us part of your why. It's so amazing. And you mentioned uh, storytelling. And, and what the listeners may not realize is that a little while ago, here, as we are recording on Friday, June the 10th, 2022, it's the end of school my kids are home, my uh, nanny is out and and the kids are home right now. And a few minutes ago, one of them came into the background of our discussion and was sitting right next to me and kept saying, daddy, 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 daddy. And I wonder, (laughs) so we paused and uh, and reset. And I wonder if you have any stories around working virtually or anything during the pandemic where this may have happened to you, seeing as how your son is sick (laughs) now, uh, anything like that ever happened?
1: Oh, wow. So I think all parents really had to get a whole new vibe about what work was going to look like. And, and South Carolina pivoted. We pretty much had to cut shut the entire court system down and be creative about how we could give people access to the system. And so we went on to a virtual hearing environment. And we were very lucky. Francis was not compulsorily school aged. And at, when the pandemic hit, he had just turned four and so we were able to figure out between his, my husband's parents and the two of us a schedule so that we could keep working without missing much of a beat, and luckily I'm married to the IT guy, so he had me pretty well set up, but it was a real challenge, but one of my first hearings, I had everything set up, and you know, I'd read all the things about setting your background so that you're front lit, not back lit, so everyone could see and hear you, and and I had this great setup behind me. It looks super professional. And Francis just comes tearing in through the house with no pants on and no underpants on, just running through the background of my hearing.
0: Whoa. So we
1: shifted. Of course, all the, everyone is chuckling because all of the other lawyers and you know, the judges are parents as well. So we're all kind of juggling the same balls. So we kind of pivoted. We moved where right I took virtual court and we up until thankfully we're we're mostly back in person now but I did have one hearing where in South Carolina children are appointed guardians who are lawyers to help represent their interests and the guardian always goes last in the hearing that's just kind of the protocol so the plaintiff's lawyer says something and then the defendant's lawyer says something and I'm muted and as soon as I hit unmute Francis screams from the other room Mommy, I've got a poopy, oh. and everyone is laughing their heads off. Of course, they're muted, so and I burst into a terrible blush because I blush really easily. And when I composed myself, I asked the judge. I say, Your Honor, I would move to strike that from the record, please. And the yeah.
0: oh, my daughter's down and here. The, she's in my lap now, and she's laughing. A good and so story. The judge
1: denied my motion and ordered the transcript for me for his high school graduation gift. <laughs>
0: <laughs> thank you for gifting us with that story i think a lot of parents feel that who have the uh, you know the opportunity to work virtually when the kids are running the background do you remember that bbc news video from a few years ago <laughs> yes. where the, uh, the kids broke into the live newscast and they were running in the background i think my and, wife and, and mom I,
1: comes in like a superhero and pulls that little rolly card out yes
0: yes she falls down I, grabs them you know gets i, them I out think the benefit of
1: us all having to go through this kind of experience. And I hope as a boss, and I think other bosses would be wise to to kind of under, more humanize the people that we're working with. And I've known people who have, whose employers have been so incredibly critical, you know, if their children are making noise in the background during meetings. And everyone that works with us has a family, you know, whether they have children or not, that's still a family that we're all having, you know, to kind of negotiate between the you know, my mom is sick or the you know kids are home from school because there's a COVID issue. And and I think it's humanized, I hope for me, I know the court system really humanized it for us and was very kind and patient with the parents and the with all the virtual experiences. But I hope, and I, as a boss, you know, I went to, a, I mean, if you can do the work on a boat, in a moat, at home, in the office, as long as work's getting done, I don't have a problem. You know, the phones we set it up to ring everywhere. If you're doing it at home, that's fine. If you're here, that's fine. If you have to take leave, you take leave. And I think I think it's helped me both working for people and having staff working for me is understanding that, you know, we are, we're working together as a family for other families and to just humanize that element. I mean, because the pandemic has changed the way we work, we can work anywhere. And, but at the same time, it, I think it turned the speed down and I don't know that that's a bad thing. And, you know, I'm mentoring a young lady right now who is opening a business kind of talking about, you know, startup and what, I mean, different industry. And one of the things she asked me is like, how did you figure out how much you wanted to make? How did you figure out this? And I thought it was so interesting because in law school, which is a whole story, but there's this limiting mentality in the law. You know, if you do law review, I've got to do law review because I don't want you to have an advantage because it's a very competitive environment. And I had such great mentors who helped me encourage me to define what success really was going to look like for me. And so with my young lady that I'm mentoring, I said, so success, when I thought about what I wanted to, to make, I'm I'm not a real fluffy person. I'm a homebody. I like to kayak and, you know, spend time at home playing video games with my kid. But I thought way back to when I was little and the things that gave me the most fear. And it's like, you know, we had food insecurity. We had housing insecurity. We had all of these things that so many families are dealing with. And so what I decided, okay, so if I can go to the grocery store, which is really a thing now and not have to worry, I don't have to go on triple coupon day. I can just go in and get what I need and not have to sweat about it in the way that I watch my mom sweat about it. I was like, all right, so that's where I'm going to set my goal. And then anything beyond that is gravy. If I have, you know, and, and having that attitude that, rather than a a mindset of, of need, but of looking for plentifulness, you know, where you have these needs, these basic needs being met, where you can really not experience, you know, you can have those fears kind of assuage for your kid. And then anything beyond that is gravy, you know, so we've, done, you know, we've done great as, you know, we're getting, we're in heading into our fifth year. We've done really well during the time, even during the pandemic. But for me, it's, just making sure and that I am able to define that success. I don't want a corner job in a high-rise law firm. I want to be able to serve what I think of as real people, make a living that I can, you know, go to the grocery store and get what I need and make sure we have all of these things. And then beyond that, everything extra, it, it reminds me of my grandma used to say, you can only make so much money and the rest of it's just for showing off. And I don't want to show off. I want, you know, I want to be able to do that and then serve. You know, because, I mean, isn't that the
0: whole point? Absolutely. And, and thank you again for giving us a coaching masterclass on the, uh, the idea of deficit thinking versus abundance thinking, where once the basic things are met, we really have all that we need to live a plentiful, abundant life. And, and I love the way you frame that up. Today's podcast is sponsored by Tough as Nails Mentality. There's going to be tough things that happen in our lives, ladies and gentlemen, and when they do, it is our imperative, our requirement to show up with resilience and grit and to be tough as nails in our mentality. And that is born out of challenge. It's born out of frustration. It's born out of the hardest stuff imaginable that each and every one of us has ever been through tough as nails mentality you're hearing it right now on this episode so let's figure out how we all might develop tough as nails mentality and do it with a little bit of love and empathy in our hearts today's sponsor for the eternal optimist podcast and a step before that we were talking about our children and humanizing the workplace and how that might not be a bad thing. I, I agree with you, Rebecca. I believe it's actually a very positive thing because so many people that I see that are out there working right now, they go to work all day, come home, whatever's left over, they give for the family. And it's like the family can be an annoyance. And I love it. They can invite the family in or they can have a little more acceptance and tolerance start and then maybe acceptance and maybe abundance towards family when it comes to the work world. So I love that that you're doing that and I think it's a great modeling for success for our children that when they try to join us on a call as my daughter just did a moment ago you might have seen <laughs> it's not you know quickly to to yell get out it's not quickly to say hey I will I'll pay attention to you uh tomorrow but during the week I have to work it's It's something where we can invite them in. So I love the way you're you're, you're framing all these things. I'd love to move us to a place of asking for your advice. So let's imagine that there's a listener out there who's really connected with any of the things you shared because you've shared a, a vast array of knowledge and experience. So if they are connecting with something out there and let's say that they have some fears, what might be a place or what might be a piece of advice you can offer someone who is overcoming a challenge or a fear or an insecurity?
1: I passionately believe in mentoring passionately and as kind of a perfectionist, one of those people who just have always taken on, you know, all the work myself, I'll do it myself. I had to shift that model of thinking and lean on people who had better experience. And so when I have fear, when I have frustrations about something I unapologetically look to people who have a better skill set to me, who are smarter, who are more experienced, who have these skills so that I can pull from their strength. And so I encourage everyone. And I feel so lucky because I have had some of the most incredible mentors professionally and personally and uh, anyone could dream of. But we can't just... Up, I think we have to turn around and hold the door open for other mentor and you know, mentees. And so we have a policy in our office: if a young lawyer calls or an old lawyer who doesn't necessarily have the specialty practice that you know they may have a some unique military family call question. The, the policy is you put them straight through. If I can be reached, I will be reached because the people who did that for me changed the course of my career, and so. I think we have a duty not just in the law but in every industry we want to leave a legacy behind us of excellence and the only way that can happen is if those who have the skills are willing to freely give of their skills and you know i i got a call yesterday from this young lawyer who i met just completely randomly she cold called my office and this was before I had my own practice, just cold called the office. I am a young lady. She's working at a daycare. I'm interested in being a lawyer and I want to talk to an actual lawyer, but I don't know any. Set the appointment. Let's go out to lunch. Let me tell you from my perspective what it's like to go to law school, what I wish I'd have known. If I can ever be of service to you, please don't hesitate to call me. Well, five years later after this lunch, literally five years later, I get an invitation to her law school graduation. And with a note in it saying, you were the only person who was willing to open their door to me to talk to me. And she's brilliant and wonderful and such a great addition to this practice. And I didn't really feel like I did anything special. I just took this kid out to lunch who wanted to talk about being a lawyer. But it was a game changer for her. And so we have a duty in whatever industry we are in. When people reach out, you grab them and you pull them through the door. You give them that opportunity because and I think it's particular, it's not unique to the law, but it's endemic in the law where because it is such a competitive environment, you know, it is it's adversarial by its very nature that there is this misconception that if the sun shines on you, it's not shining on me. And I think there is plenty of sunshine to go around. And building up other people in your industry only makes your job better.
0: Wow. Thank you. What an amazing story of giving back, paying it forward. And... Getting that letter or getting that invitation five years later. It's an amazing story. Rebecca, how might we find out more about you or find out what you're doing? How can our listeners connect with you and and see what you're up to?
1: Sure. Well, they can reach out to us. We're on social media, Facebook, Instagram, kind of all of the platforms. I don't use Twitter. I had a case that had to run me off of Twitter. Someone found out my Twitter handle and just Twitter bombed me, but it's creolfamilylaw.com. Also, for anyone who is interested, like I said, with my friend Margie, if you're interested in learning about a practice or have any questions, they're always welcome to call my office. I feel very lucky. I don't do a lot of things on the Internet because I'm flattered that most of my business is referral, which I think is the highest order of compliment for someone to be sent my way. I, you know, I do teaching and speaking through the South Carolina Bar, through their speakers bureau. So I, anytime someone's ever asked me to come and talk about what I do or, or talk about my experience as a kid, kind of growing up in poverty going on, I've, I mean, I always try and make a way to make that happen because like I said, I, I don't think I'm special. But I know I'm the exception to the rule, and sometimes just knowing, seeing someone who has been, yeah, I worked with some juveniles in criminal you know, juvenile criminal court who I really tried to encourage them. Like I've been there, I've had a parent who was a drug dealer. I've lived in poverty. I've gotten, you know, food assistance. I've you know struggled in that same way, and and there, it's not easy. But you can make choices, and you can try and do things to put yourself in a different in a different life. And so I've never said no. So I'm happy anyone can call the office and or email me and I'm happy to, to do what I can. Cause like I said, the sunshine, there's enough of it to go around.
0: Amazing. Thank you so much for the time today. Sure. Sunshine, buttercups and the She-Hulk in uh, <laughs> the family law, Rebecca Creel. Uh, thanks so much, Rebecca, for being a guest today. Much appreciated.
1: My pleasure. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to the Eternal Optimist podcast. You can check the show notes for information about today's episode. And please share the show with that friend who is wanting to think bigger. We'll see you next time.